welcome to The Renewable Generation, a show about climate and energy issues by young people for all people. This week, as always, I'm joined with my lovely co-host, Kelly Jang. Kelly, how's it hanging today? Well, today it's not actually raining, so that's been nice to be able to get outside, but over the next couple days, it's supposed to rain like four inches, which is a lot of water. Um, we have this weather system coming in called the Pineapple Express. It's basically the warm air from, you know, warm humid air from Hawaii, and it just like dumps rain. Um, and so, peop- I mean, there's like a weather warning, like, oh, there might be landslides just because, you know, the ground is already pretty wet. And then once it gets more wet, uh, yeah, it starts sliding. So it's wet and possibly going to slide. I didn't know the I didn't know that the Pineapple Express was an actual thing. <laughs> I just know it from that movie. <laughs> With a Which movie? Seth Rogen and uh, what's his name? Um, James Franco. Yeah, the guy, the Green Goblin from the original Spider-Man. James Franco. That rings a bell. Yeah, I'm. I don't know very much about uh, pop culture, so. <laughs> it was one of the first like pothead movies, like stoner movies I ever saw. <laughs> My dad loved it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think the origins of the term come from something else, but it's also used to re- refer to this weather phenomenon. So, you know, it's it's interesting to learn about these different weather phenomena, especially how they're going to be changing as a result of climate change, um, especially like as a skier, seeing kind of how this affects our snowpack. And in a state like Washington, where we rely a lot on hydro, actually, like the hydro in the summer is highly dependent on the snowpack that we build up in the winter. So, you know, the snow that washes away during this rainstorm is not going to be available for us for hydro in August. So snow, huh? You're talking a lot about snow and, and rain and stuff. And I, I could talk a little bit about water, um, a little bit about some water stuff. So, so you know, last... Um, Last week, or I guess two weeks ago now, I think it's strange that I didn't mention that uh, I went to Outside Lands, and I was uh, I was out there, and realized that uh, I was as thirsty at one point. I was I was dehydrated, and I went to go to a water station to fill up, and there was like absolutely no water at the water station, and I was like really shocked by this. I was just like, I like in the moment I like needed water, and there was just no water available, and I was like like seized with anxiety i was literally like like freaking out and i was like where's the water and i started to spiral i was like all the water in the world is dwindling and i I have a front row seat to this like right here i'm not even like exaggerating i was straight up like having like a spiral um outside lens was also very uh (laughs) anxiety inducing it was really intense but yeah i i just uh you know been thinking a lot about water recently and and i wanted to ask you kelly how has wap or WAP? How has how has WAP affected your life recently? Well, uh, and what and what is WAP? Well, there are many um, definitions of WAP, particularly in the energy sector. So the most famous one is uh, the Weatherization Assistance Program, which um, is funded by the Department of Energy, and um, basically it's like the low income. It helps low income people um, with weatherizing their homes. So that's the most famous one, I think. Uh, Famously, some guy, like a city official in Michigan, posted something about WAP. It was like a picture of Cardi B and someone else like saying, there's some holes in this house. And then he was forced to apologize, although I think he single-handedly, I'm just saying he single-handedly raised the uh, 
profile of WAP. Yes, he he's really an influencer for the Weatherization Assistance Program. So I just why how can you fault anyone for trying to go viral on the internet? Um, but in our case today, we're talking about water and power. So that's that's WAP for us, um, and it's in uh, more shall we say scholarly terms, it's called the water energy nexus. So it's basically the ways in which water and power interact. And there are a lot of ways. Um, so Steve, do you want to kind of dive into that a bit? Sure. And, and for the purposes of this episode, I'm going to continue to call it WAP. Um, even, even though water energy nexus is, uh, sounds pretty nice. Uh, WAP just a little, it kind of, uh, it rolls off the tongue a little bit easier. So according to Wikipedia, there is no formal definition of the water energy nexus, or WAP. Um, the concept refers mainly to the relationship between the water used for energy production, um, including both electricity and sources of fuel such as oil and natural gas, and the energy consumed to extract, purify, deliver, heat and cool, treat and dispose of water and wastewater, and sometimes referred to as energy intensity. So... Um, we're going to split this episode into kind of two, two halves here. The first half is going to be a little bit what kinds of um, – what, what, what instances do we use energy for water uses? And the second half is going to be what, what instances do we use water for energy uses? Um, so starting off, um, in 2001, operating water systems in the, in the United States consumed approximately 3% of total annual electricity. Um, in California – um, that number is actually around 12% of total electricity, which is actually crazy. 12% uh, of all the electricity in California is used to operate water. Um, so most of that water is for pumping um, agricultural water, or, or but, but uh, sorry, it's for pumping water for agriculture, um, but really for anything else for that matter. So it's as well as drinking water and economy and industry, um, every, everyone uses water. Um, so the State Water Project and the Central Valley Project are together the largest water system in the world, with the highest water lift of over 2,000 feet across the Tehachapi Mountains, delivering water from the um, relatively wet Northern California to rural Central Valley agriculture, and finally to arid and dry SoCal. So um, consequently, the, the State Water Project and Central Valley Project are the largest consumers of electricity in California. Fun fact... I also work with the Tehachapi um, Water District. I think they're called Tehachapi Cummings Water District. Um, so it's cool that I, we, it, this is like, it was not planned, by the way. We both, uh, we started researching this, this topic this week, and I've realized that one of my clients is, um, it, well, one of my potential clients uh, is, is a, um, the Tehachapi Cummings Water District. So cool, cool there. Um, shout out also to um, the, some of the work that we do at Terra Verde with um, the Association of California Water Agencies, or ACWA, you know, <laughs> aptly named ACWA, um, is re responsible for 90% of all water deliveries in California. And um, really cool because ACWA is also a big supporter of making our energy systems resilient to PSPSs, um, public safety power shutoffs. So they're really huge into clean energy and uh, climate, you know, stewardship. Um, Although I would just um, say that being resilient to public safety power shutoffs doesn't necessarily go hand in hand with being, you know, climate friendly, because in a lot of those cases, like, well, they shut the power off, we're going to go on diesel generator. That's not great. Um, and so it depends on kind of what you're using to replace it. Totally. And, you know, that's, it's, that's exactly right, because every single one of their, um, like, lift stations or, or, um, or uh, water treatment plants or reservoirs, they all have generators on them. They all have generators. And so we're actually looking at 
um, installing batteries or creating microgrids to potentially replace those generators. Um, interestingly, most of the time, economics, you can't really compete with a generator, which is interesting. It's not all the time. I, would, I don't want to make the claim that it's always um, in economically inferior, but usually the, the, the use case is not going to be economic per se. It's going to be more of like a, um, additional resiliency. You'll have an additional four to, four to eight hours of, of backup power um, or just being able to not use uh, dirty, dirty, clean, dirty uh, fuel sources. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, the main reason for that is that just the capital cost of batteries is really high. Whereas like the cost, you know, the cost of a generator is not that high, but then you have to pay for the fuel when you use it. Whereas a battery, it's like, it was just sitting there not being used. It's very expensive. Um, Yeah. And then also another interesting idea that's being explored with these water canals is that like, you don't have, unlike energy, Water, um, you know, you don't have to time it and like generate it or supply it at exactly the, you know, second that it's used. So there's some potential for energy storage in these um, just by pumping water at different times or potentially even by like, you know, you have like a tiny little um, run of the river hydro system on the downhill side of the um, of your channel. So I don't know to what extent that's actively being explored. I know a company called Intel Energy was like kind of investigating it, but, but that could be really cool. Yeah. Um, okay, so moving on with our talk conversation about WAP, um, as we do, um, we also want to talk about treating water, so water treatment. Um, so not just pumping water around, but what, what do we actually do with water? So first I'm going to talk about drinking water, um, and then I'll talk about um, other water. Um, so drinking water is relatively – usually you start off with a relatively cleaner water um, sources as opposed to kind of wastewater. Um, and I, I should also say that I took most of this – most of the content that's going to come out right now is, is stuff that I learned from my good friend John Groger. If you're listening, John, good talking with you. I like your, your lettuce farm. He sent me a picture of his lettuce farm today. Um, but he, he works as a wastewater tr- treatment engineer um, over in Maryland and knows about a lot of this because he works in it. So um, drinking water, you start off with relatively clean water, um, and then usually that water flows in to um, a, re- a section of the, waste- of the treatment plant, and you do what's called coagulation and flo- flocculation. Um, so coagulation is, um, um, so chemicals are added with a positive charge, um, are added into the water and the positive charge of these chemicals neutralizes a lot of the negative charges of dirt and other dissolved particles in the water. When this, when this happens, the particles bind together with the chemicals or coagulate and they form larger particles called flock. Um, so then this flock goes into another chamber where sedimentation occurs. The flock essentially settles down to the bottom of the water. Um, and then filtration occurs. So once it's been settled to the bottom of the water supply, the clear water on top will pass through um, various filters of, of different compositions like sand, gravel, charcoal, and sometimes some chemical uh, membranes as well. Um, and they have different pore sizes, so they, they allow um, different, essentially like they're sieves, they're essentially sieves. Um, um, and they allow different dissolved particles such as dust and parasites, bacteria, viruses, and chemicals to be removed from this water stream. And the last step here is disinfection. So after this water has all been filtered and um, most solid particles have been removed, a disinfectant, usually chlorine, uh, chloramine, um, may be added in order to kill the remaining parasites, bacteria, and viruses, and to protect the water from germs when it is piped to homes and businesses. Um, And at this point, after everything's been done, um, 
they get the water gets pumped. Um, usually gets pumped from a low. It's usually at a low gravitational location. It gets pumped up to cities and towns to some high location, like some water tower. And usually the water actually comes down through gravity. So they just allow the gravity to, to take it to your ho- to your houses. Um, so there's a lot of energy being put pumped in. Um, you know, at those pumps, at those at the bottom of the gravitational wells. So does the actual like water treatment process itself use that much energy? Because it seems like basically, like at least with the coagulation, flocculation, you just like put this thing in and like let the, all the dirt fall out. So, I mean, it's like a little bit of mixing, but it's not like you're actively, you know, like trying to push it through a membrane and get the stuff on the other side, which would be a lot more energy intensive. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. I think the drinking, the drinking water um, treatment is not quite as energy intensive, but wastewater energy, um, wastewater treatment is a lot more energy intensive. So yeah, you were saying like the water flows down by gravity to reach your house. So basically like the water pressure, like basically the way that water pressure works, it's like, it depends on the depth of the water. So that's why they want to put the water tower at like a really high location so that when it comes to your house, there actually is some level of water pressure. I was reading some meme article this other time, which is basically like, you know, the billionaires that live at the top of the hill, like the the curse, their curse is that they have low water pressure so that their showers suck <laughs> because, I mean, I think you could probably put like some pump on your water system to like increase the pressure, but it's like the water pressure that they get automatically is just really low because they're like kind of high or like at the same level as the water tower. So like basically it's like once it's pumped up to the water tower, there's not additional pumps downstream of it to get it to your house. It should kind of just flow automatically. But if you live at the top of the hill, you're kind of got some problems. (laughs) Billionaire probs. Hashtag just billionaire problems. Poor, poor Jeff Bezos with his weak shower head (laughs) (laughs) and like drippy sinks. Um, so, so that's drinking water. Um, so wastewater treatment is kind of on the other side of the spectrum. So wastewater is, is water that comes out of people's um, sinks and faucets and you know, toilets and showers. And this is all considered wastewater. And it comes into, um, you pretty much start off with a lot dirtier uh, source to begin with. Um, so the first couple of steps here is there are various numbers of screens and sieves that remove large objects such as rocks and sand and twigs and you know whatever else falls into this stream of water. Sometimes, funnily enough, the YouTube video that I that I watched to to learn about this, even drugs and guns get you know get sorted into the mix here. Yeah, so so a lot of these wastewater treatment plants they have this whole system where if they find like some illicit substance, they'll ship it off to the nearest police station and they they put it in a locker somewhere. So people would be flushing stuff, you know, all, all drains lead to wastewater treatment plants, as they say. Well, that's, that's actually not necessarily true because some of the storm drains just go into the water, you know, like if you've seen some of the stickers on the drains that are like, oh, this, like here, it'll be like, you know, this drains to Puget Sound or in the Bay, it'll be like this drain to the Bay to try to discourage people from like dumping their random stuff down the storm drains. True. I wonder um, what kind of what kind of sewer that like Pennywise was sitting in. Was that like a, a one going to a wastewater treatment plant or Pennywise? Pennywise uh, from It, the scary movie. You don't know about It? <laughs> oh, is it the that the clown? clown yeah, yeah. Meme? yeah, 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 yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't know, but it it's probably a com- <laughs> it's probably a combined sewer. 
Do you know what a combined sewer is? No. Is that where they have those Florida alligators hanging out in there? <laughs> no. Okay. So a combined so um a combined sewer. This is not usually the case anymore. But like in the past, it was like a combined storm drain plus like house drain system. So like the sewage would be mixed with the rainwater. This is fine normally, but if there's a big storm, it's like there's too much rain and the sewage treatment plants can't handle all of it. So they just start dumping raw sewage. And I think that I, I think San Francisco has a combined sewer. So after it rains a lot, do not go into the bay because that is nasty. And it's, it's just like with, you know, it's like the wastewater gets diluted by the rainwater, but there's still like a finite amount of processing capacity that they have. So that's right. Um, but hopefully, hopefully no illicit <laughs> guns or drugs in, in that storm water runoff. Um, so anyway, so after the first, s- s- uh, screens and sieves, um, all that remains, hopefully at this point is organic matter in the water runoff. So essentially here is where the energy gets added in at very high um, levels. So they, th- they have these things called aeration basins or aerators. Um, and, and, and apparently in the industry, you just call them blowers. Um, so what you do is you have these giant fans where they, they add bacteria and microbes and they just blow air into it. And, and blown it into the water to help um, these microbes essentially be happy and do this thing called aerobic digestion, and they eat all the nitrogen, phosphorus, and other organic materials. And this uses a lot of energy. So this is actually like where most of the energy input is. Um, and after this step, the final step is to disinfect the water with chlorine, ozone, or UV. Um, so yeah, that's how, that's how water is treated. That's how um, you know, wastewater and drinking water is both treated. So... Um, so how about how about desalination? So I think that's one thing that I was curious about going into this this episode. It's like I've heard a lot about it. Is it even worthwhile? Um, is it going to save us when we run out of water <laughs> in the next hundred years, or or what? Yeah. So basically, desalination. I guess this could even be lumped into the like drinking water category because it's the idea is like you're taking undrinkable water and converting it into drinking water. The main way that they do this is essentially reverse osmosis. So regular osmosis is like if you have like salt water on one side of the membrane and like fresh water on the other side, the water will go into the salty side. But then with reverse osmosis, basically you're trying to push the water from the salty side to the non-salty side. And this basically it goes against the uh, energy gradient. So you're trying, so it takes a lot of energy. And so basically they have these membranes and then there's like the salt water that passes through and then you're trying to basically squeeze the water out, keep the salt in, and then the discharge from that process is like slightly saltier water. So one of the issues, I don't think this is that big of an issue, but it has been brought up, is that like when you're just, you know, you're increasing the saltiness of your local like bay or ocean or whatever. Um, And then another much bigger concern is the amount of electricity consumption. Because these things, like, apparently 36% of the cost for desalination are electricity costs. Um, It takes about 3 kilowatt hours per cubic meter of water to produce fresh water. Um, I don't really have a good frame of reference for that. So let's see. Um, Cubic meter to... uh, So that's like 1,000 liters. So, okay, it's about 264 gallons. So I guess that's like... 10 watt hours per gallon, which is not that much if you're just doing drinking water, but if we're also talking about like, you know, the water that you're using to take a shower or for watering crops, um, it could start getting up there, especially as we, you know, start doing a much, if it's really something that we start using in really high amounts. Um, And then the main concern also is that, you know, these things, 
So there's some talk like, oh, you know, you could actually have this be a source of flexible load, right? Because you don't like you, there's, you can store the water somewhere. It's, you know, you could put it in the water towers and some tank. So you don't need to be running it all the time. So some people think like it could potentially make sense to run the desalination plants when you have excess solar. Um, But then the problem with that is that even though like such a high percentage of the cost is energy, the capital cost is way high. And so you want to be able to pay off your investment in building this desalination plant by like producing as much water as possible because that's how you're going to make money. But if you're only running it like eight hours a day because that's when the excess solar is, you're, it's going to take way longer for you to pay back your investment, even if the electricity ends up being significantly cheaper. So I think this is the kind of thing where like, it's it's kind of similar to like people hoping that green hydrogen will be a source of flexible load. It's kind of questionable, but it's definitely an interesting concept. And I think especially if the differential in energy prices gets like way bigger or the capital cost of desalination plants goes down, it could be really interesting, especially if you it's like, you know, if the pumps are like highly responsive to grid signals, it could be a pretty interesting thing. Hmm. Smart, smart water desalinators, essentially. Smart desalination. That's the future. Um, can you sell? Move over, smart water. Oh, that, that'd be the real smart water. Imagine <laughs> <laughs> if smart water was made, um, yeah, from smart desalination plants. Exactly. Um, so moving on here, we're moving on to other energy energy uses with water. So heating and cooling. Um, this is the other, like, the other column, uh, the other pillar of, of energy uses here. So 30% of all of California's residential natural gas consumption actually comes from water-related processes, mainly residential water heating. So what was interesting about that is that it's, I mean, I mean, if you're using therm- dealing with thermodynamics, electricity is not going to be the number one <laughs> source of energy here, at least not in 2021. So um, heat, so... Um, yeah, I I thought it was interesting how how uh, how much natural gas is really consumed just for healing, heating, and cooling water. Yeah, but one thing I would add is like that's the case for California because you're not using natural gas to heat your house that much. Like I actually maybe we can look up what I mean. I'm not going to do it right now, but like I'm sure that the percentage of natural gas consumption that's used for heating hot water in Washington is significantly lower just because we have a lot of natural gas furnaces that we use for heat. Um, so, yeah, and it's it's just 30% of residential natural gas consumption. Like, there's, you know, the, all the power plants. Um, but one of the potential solutions to this is using heat pump water heaters. So um, it's basically like this is actually more energy efficient because the way that a heat pump works is that it takes heat from someplace and like puts it somewhere else. And so you can have like the quote unquote coefficient of performance. It's like for every one kilowatt hour of energy you put in, how much heat you get out on the other side, it can be between like two to four or even higher depending on like the temperature gradient. Um, and so that's, it would be like more efficient than using natural gas and it's electric. Um, and so I think in states like Washington, where we have really cheap electricity, we should be electrifying a lot of stuff. Like I honestly don't understand why we have gas furnaces. Like, I think it makes sense to have it like as a backup, but for like 90% of the time having even like a basic heat pump is sufficient. Um, and I think actually, um, 
after the heat wave we had this summer, this is getting slightly off track, but after the heat wave, the big heat wave we had this summer, there was some legislation proposed. It's like, okay, like every air conditioner has to also be a heat pump. So it's like, people are going to be installing air conditioning anyway. We should make that also be possible to reduce your natural gas use in the winter. So I'm not totally sure what happened with that, but I saw that. I was like, that's cool. Good job, state legislators of Washington. It's also especially important when you start to consider that most Americans don't, or most consumers, I would say, I would assume, but uh, most Americans don't replace their major appliances unless they need to. It usually, it's, it's a replacement of emergency, meaning it's broken down when you need it, and you just pretty much got to buy a new one ASAP. And that's usually in like the most in the, in the temperature extremes, in, in the winter or in the summer when it's when it's temp- like really really hot or really really cold, and your AC breaks or your heater breaks. Um, so for the most part, I have I have um, my sister's boyfriend actually asks me a lot about natural gas sometimes, and he, they have a whole their whole house is hooked up to natural gas, and they say like um, I'm telling them you should go electrify, and you should definitely electrify, but I think it's, there's something to be said about when is it really feasible to electrify and that's going to be when when the appliance breaks and sometime in the next zero to 30 years um so that's really like the most yeah your gas appliance well the thing is your gas appliances don't actually last 30 years they maybe last for like 15 years but it's like if we want everything to be decarbonized by 2035 we can't be putting any new gas appliances in like right now absolutely and i i think you know, right now it's like you have to make the default and possibly only option to retrofit with electric. Whereas right now it's kind of like they're trying to make incentives to encourage people to install heat pumps. But it's like, no, you should just like not even make gas an option and then. Speaking of heat pump water heaters... Our sponsor today is Bright Power, the leading provider of energy and water management services for real estate owners, investors, and operators. We're actually working on several um, heat pump water heater projects um, in California for multifamily residential, which is very exciting. And we'll be hopefully putting some uh, content out about that in the first half of next year. So stay tuned for that. And um, it's very interesting from our perspective, kind of like, we in the past we did a good amount of retrofits that were kind of like you know installing more efficient gas boilers. But it's like, look, if we want to go to net zero, we can't be having natural gas like new natural gas in buildings. So it's been exciting to see the state policy landscape shift towards putting um, <clears throat> towards doing uh, electrification, and we're riding that wave. So join Bright Power to help WAP decarbonize. <laughs> <laughs> So speaking of decarbonizing water, um, what there there are other kinds. There are many kinds of water out there. You know, there's carbonized water, there's decarbonized water. And stuff. In fact, I'm drinking carbonated water right now. What what <laughs> type of is it? Spindrift. It's a spindrift uh, lime, which I, I will say I'm not a huge fan of the lime flavor. I'm sorry, sorry, spindrift. What what's <laughs> really, what's the best spindrift flavor in your opinion? I feel like I feel like grapefruit. Grapefruit's like the the solid one always. That is a good one. I like the, yeah, I do like the grapefruit one or like the raspberry mint one. Uh, is it raspberry mint? It was like, like half of the picture is like a raspberry and the half is, the other half is something green. Yeah. It's like raspberry. Yeah. It's something green, like passion fruit or something. I don't no, know. Passion, passion fruit is something different. Anyway, 
Ironically enough, it was lime. Anyway, so different kinds of water. <laughs> so water can either be used or consumed and can be categorized as fresh, ground, surface, blue, green, or gray, um, among the other spindrift flavors. Um, water is usually considered... <laughs> what? Spindrift flavor is gray? That's nasty. <laughs> um, water is considered used if it does not reduce the supply of water to downstream users. However, it usually is degraded in some form. Um, and water is consumed when it is removed from the system, such as by evaporation or consumption by crops or humans. So what are other uses of water out there, Kelly? Some that you've already kind of talked about. Uh, I drink water from my tap. And I take showers occasionally. And I water the plants. And uh, wash my dishes. And, and create electrons. Create electrons. Create el- oh yes, yes, yes. Well, not not me personally, but uh, and they're not. We're not creating electrons. Okay, that's what happens at a quantum level. Creating, creating, creating moving electrons. Excuse me. Adding energy, moving electrons to a higher energy state. Um, but yeah. So, <clears throat> I mean, so in the section we're talking about using water for the purposes of energy, as I mentioned in the beginning, this is like a big deal for us here in the Pacific Northwest, which is like hydropower. I think sixty percent of Washington State's energy already comes from hydropower. Um, and the I, I mean, California is really out there hoping that we're going to be able to be, you know, a sort of flexible baseload type of thing when they have a lot of solar in the summer. That's um, the hydro is going to be able to ramp up during, you know, the evening hours to help supply some of that gap. But obviously, hydro is going to be highly affected by climate change. So the lower snowpack in the winters will mean less water to use for hydro in peak seasons. Um, heat waves will also lead to massive releases of water when we don't want it. For instance, in the last heat wave, the massive heat wave we had last June, I think something like 100 inches of snow melted from Mount Rainier in a week. That's crazy. And that's water that, like, if you're going to use it to generate electricity, like, where's it going to go? And part of the big, I mean, dams, in addition to providing electricity, the biggest thing that they, I mean, probably even higher priority than that is preventing flooding and providing water for agriculture. So if it's like, oh, there's a big flood coming, they have to start letting water off the sides before it, like, completely overruns the dam and washes out everything downstream. And so with more extreme weather, like, the you know, controllability of hydro is probably going to be somewhat compromised. Um, and especially like with climate change, also when we get like rain events in the winter that just like sloshes water off the snowpack, that's when you start getting like really, really nasty flooding. And then it's like, then it's no longer available for use when we need it in the heat of the summer. Um, yeah. And then, so power plants that are not hydro plants also use a lot of water, particularly you know, thermal plants, gas, coal, and nuclear, they basically, they run very hot and they, it's basically, it's like a heat engine. So you need one side that's cold and one side that's hot. And so the cold side, you have to, it's a lot of the time cooled by water. So there's two different ways that power plants are cooled. One is called once through cooling. So it's basically like you have the hot thing, you run the water past it, the water kind of heats up. And then it's like, if it's next to a river, you know, you have the like hot thing next this is like their cold sink, but it's basically, you know, it's like the water runs over it to cool it down. Whereas closed loop cooling, it's essentially you just have the water that's like in the system and then it, you know, condenses, 
and then you're just recycling this water for cooling. So once through cooling leads, I mean, it's not great for the ecosystem because in some cases, like the, you know, the water passing through a power plant could be like 10 degrees hotter on one side or the other. Um, and basically one of the big issues with warmer water is that it can hold less dissolved oxygen. And so, I mean, like this is an issue when it comes to climate change, it, even just raising the temperature by a few degrees can affect some of the wa wildlife, but like passing through a power plant and raising it like 10 or 20 degrees, way worse. Um, and with the, so a lot of power, I mean, there's a lot of talk like we should move towards closed loop cooling. And in a lot of cases, that is actually what's being used. So if you ever see, you know, if you imagine the stock photo of a nuclear plant that has those like big, you know, funnel looking things that look kind of like smokestacks, they're not actually smokestacks because smokestacks, if you think about it, it's like, it's more like a vertical like stick thing where the smoke is coming out. Those are actually cooling towers. So basically the water will go in there and um, be vaporized and then it'll kind of like collect on the sides of that cooling tower and then kind of trickle back down. So it's basically that's actually some it's actually good for the environment because it's making sure that you're using less water and a bit, maybe like 10% of the steam will actually like go out the top but like for the most part the water is recycled and so it uses significantly less it it results in withdrawals of significantly less water or yeah it results in basically less damage to the ecosystem compared to once through cooling because like you're not, you know, raising the temperature of your local river by a lot. Um, and then you might think, well, if like using water has all these issues, right? Because you're like taking water out, you're like heating up the rivers, that's bad. Why don't we just use air to cool it? Well, I mean, if you've ever, you know, it's like if it's 80 degrees outside, you're really hot. But then if you go into like a pool that's 80 degrees, it feels cold because the higher um, heat capacity of water means that it's just so much more effective at cooling. Um, and so dry cooling is not particularly effective, especially for things that are like that hot and need to be cooled quickly. Hmm. So that would that, that would be considered a gray water, I assume. <laughs> after it's done its job of cooling? Well, I mean, it's not even really gray water because it's just like, uh, I've, at least in my, like gray water is more like household wastewater that doesn't come from the toilet. <laughs> I think gray water is anything that has been uh, polluted during production, say in agriculture or, or anything. So I don't think it would necessarily even be polluted because you're just running it through like the cooling system. Like it could be t pretty clean. But uh, at least it's not maybe, – maybe that is the gray-flavored spindrift water. It's power plant effluent. <laughs> Nasty. I'll take, I'll take that over brown water. I, I don't, oh, I don't God. think that's a spindrift flavor yeah. I want to see. Maybe, maybe it's chocolate bubbly <laughs> water. I don't know. Yeah. Okay, so speaking of, speaking of brown water, wastewater treatment um, potentially has some uses in energy as well. So you might have heard of – anaerobic digestion. So basically the way that um, wastewater treatment, if you're going to use it for energy works, is like you settle out all the sludge, which imagine what's in there. Um, so <clears throat> it's basically the solid sludge is collected and then it goes through this process called anaerobic digestion. So an aerobic means essentially like with oxygen, anaerobic means no oxygen. And so, you know, when things are metabolized aerobically, then you, re you release carbon dioxide but without the oxygen there, essentially it releases a lot of methane. So you can capture the methane and use this as biogas, essentially. And then the burning of the methane releases some CO2, but 
because methane has such a high greenhouse gas uh, global warming potential, it's like 83 times more potent than carbon dioxide over a 25-year period, it's actually way better to burn it for uh, burn it and then just have the carbon dioxide. Um, in the meantime, the biosolids, basically anything that's left over after you have after the biogas is collected can be used as fertilizer. So fun fact, um, if you live in King County, Washington, you see these trucks driving around that say loop. It's very cute. It's like an L and like a little infinity sign and a P and there's pictures of like beautiful forests or like beautiful fields. The loop biosolids are from the wastewater treatment plant. Um, so their branding is obviously like very, you know, it's like eco-friendly and like pictures of beautiful forest fields, but it's like literally like human poop that they're using for fertilizer. <laughs> Um, but it's really cool. Actually, they're using it. Um, they're testing it on several forest sites and a couple agricultural sites in Eastern Washington to kind of show that, you know, this can lead to better soil health and like all that stuff. And I think right now it's kind of in a pilot phase, but hopefully it'll be scaled up soon. Um, I actually visited this place, um, in Lake Sammamish State Park. They have this like nursery where they grow the trees that they plant for like reforestation in the forest and they're using the loop biosolids and there's like a nice diagram about it. I was like, and like no one ever says this. I'm like, oh, it's just like poop. And they're like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not quite the the branding material that you want. (laughs) I, I feel like it's best to make it palatable to the general public, but to like get kids interested you're like oh it's your poop that helps the trees grow it's like the circle of life (laughs) um but it i mean it does also go through like a sanitation process to like because the anaerobic digestion system is like very warm then it's like totally sanitary and not gross um but still i don't know why people are uh, averse to talking about that stuff but it's really it's really cool. So, so speaking of things that go through some kind of purification process and things people don't really like talking about it, but still serve a purpose at the end of the day, it's time for the green new spiel. <laughs> Kelly, uh, <laughs> yeah, what's your green new spiel this week? Cool. So this isn't super new, um, but uh, Cal and Viruscreen released their version 4.0 um, a few weeks ago. Um, so I guess I'll give a quick background on what Cal Screen is. Basically, this is a score uh, that the California state government uses. It's by census tract, and it uses it's like it's like the pollution burden and social economic factors. So it's essentially like the environmental justice indicator that the state uses. So it has things like you know exposure to lead or like particulate matter, diesel, and then things like unemployment rate, poverty, etc. And so it's basically like what level of burden does this um, census tract have? And so it's, it's, since it's census tract, it's actually like there's more census tracts than zip codes. So it's like essentially like neighborhood level. So that's really cool that you get that level of granularity. Um, and I think a lot of incentive programs that the state is providing for like solar or um, other clean technologies or, um, yeah, batteries are more and more targeted towards disadvantaged communities. So it's cool that they released this new version. And I think a lot of companies should, I mean, it's like, the fact that they're like targeting their incentives towards that or like give giving additional tax credits for that even is like a good way to incentivize companies to do that. And in fact, my company is like, oh, we got to figure out which of these potential sales options are in disadvantaged communities because our problem, our projects will be more cost effective there. Yeah. And, and I would also add like, so the, the Cal environmental screens is like the, the, the portal or like the website that, that we use to analyze if customers are going to be able to claim 
um, S-chip incentives. There's like the battery incentive. And, you know, whether they get like the first tier, the second tier, the third tier of, of uh, S-chip incentive. And like a lot of those screens are, do you serve disadvantaged communities or low-income communities? Have you had uh, two PSPS events, public safety power shutoff events, or do you live in like a high fire threat zone? Um, so those are some of the some of the, the the Cal Environmental Screen is one of the tools that like solar developers and as well as uh, energy advisors um, use to, to to determine like what, what amount of incentive uh, projects are going to get. So very useful tool. Really glad to see it getting revamped again. So for my green new spiel, I want to talk about a company that just raised a bunch of money. The company is called Evergrow, and they just raised a $7 million seed round co-led by Ross Fubini at XYZ and Abe Yokel at uh, Congruent, both of whom have joined uh, the board. So Evergrow is the world's first carbon offtake company. So I think it's pretty pretty interesting. So right now, projects that reduce and remove CO2 emissions have a hard time getting funded because they're expensive and carbon markets are seen as risky to people who have capital. Um, so Evergrow works to fix this problem and unlock project finance for carbon reduction by being an off-taker for carbon commodities. So carbon commodities are generally, they generally represent one ton of carbon emissions. So there are many types of these, such as low-carbon fuel standard credits, um, emissions allowances, um, such as like in the cap and trade program, um, RECs, which we've talked a lot about, and uh, carbon offsets. So there are nearly oof. 300, there are nearly 300, <laughs> oof, why oof? <laughs> I mean, what are they using to verify the veracity of all of these projects? Right, okay, well, let me give my spiel first and then we'll, we'll talk about it. So, so there are nearly $300 billion worth um, of carbon commodities traded every year, mostly in regulated markets, such as the EU Emissions Trading Scheme and the Low Carbon Fuel Standard and California Cap and Trade Program. Um, you know, as Kelly has mentioned, there are, there are some carbon commodities that are more <laughs> legitimate than others, and, there's, and that's what the carbon markets are going to help determine. Um, an offtake, and, and then another definition. So an offtake contract is a promise to buy a commodity at a fixed price over an extended period of time. Typically, it's a decade or longer. So this has the effect of providing a guaranteed long-term revenue stream for commodity projects, making them easier to finance. And they are bringing these to carbon markets. Um, so their aim is, um, the, the, the startup's aim is to unlock project finance for carbon reduction and catalyze a flywheel of new project development and accelerates our transition to a carbon-neutral civilization. Um, I read all this from a tweet storm just earlier today. Um, well, I mean, I, I mean, if we're talking about financing like carbon removals, that's cool. But then if we're talking about just like you know offset projects, and I, I guess, I mean, I'm sure that they're going to have some kind of like protocols for verifying these projects. Um, but I'm just curious, like, where does their money come from? Like, right, like they off take the projects, but like, who's paying for it? Their investors? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I think it's through those regulated markets, those regulated carbon markets. So like LCF, LCFS, low carbon fuel standard, or RECs. You know, RECs like who pays for RECs? Like, it's just a it's monetized because there's regulation that says it's worth some money. But then I I thought okay, so if so, let's say I thought it was supposed to help provide price certainty. So like like the low carbon fuel standard, like it can you know the price of those credits can vary over time is that are they kind of just like a hedge or something like that i think yeah they're trying to so they're creating that's right they're doing offset um they're they're being an off taker um so essentially they're going to say they're going to buy this commodity at a fixed price let's say 50 dollars 
per ton over 13 years or something like that. So it creates that yeah. that structure in the market that people can start to, oh. you know, flood uh, capital into. Okay. Yeah, so it's kind of just like providing more certainty relative to the price of carbon or credits or whatever that could go up or down. Well, I mean, there is pretty significant upside for them if they like lock in the price of carbon projects right now and the price of carbon in California goes way up, which it could as the limits get tightened. So could be really interesting to see. Yeah, especially with uh, this. We didn't. We haven't mentioned this at all in the episode, but the the bipartisan infrastructure package just passed in the the BIF. The BIF. They just passed, and um, the Build Back Better plan is not quite passed yet. But in there, we we already heard that the clean energy performance payment uh, payments program has already been scrapped. But potentially, there will be a carbon fee or a carbon price or a carbon tax. And if one if if any one of those three names gets put into the bill, this you know this company Evergrow could could definitely cap capitalize on that. Well, all I'm looking forward to hearing more about this company. Honestly, I don't know that much about finance, so I'm glad that there's other <laughs> experts in that space who can handle all that. Yeah, and um, this is not really a green news field, but I read this book the other day called Range by David Epstein. It was so good. I highly recommend it. Um, it's basically about how, like, having a wide range of different interests and, you know, not focusing necessarily on one specific thing, it gives you the power. I'm going to say power, but it actually is a power to, like, integrate things from different fields um, and make connections that otherwise you might not have. And so I think, like, at least we're trying to have some range here. You know, we're both, like, engineers and, like, nerdy people by day. We try to get dabble in policy um, outside of that, you know, we write bad music, <laughs> but, which by the way, we do, we do have to make that music video. Oh, we do. The, the fans to the fans, you, you'll hear something. You'll hear this. It's <laughs> when our, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a parody. It's a parody. <laughs> that, that's all I'll say for now. You want to, you want to say it? You want to say the title? Oh, oh yes. It's, it's Powerwall. It's parody of Wonderwall. So stay tuned for that. That'll be, uh, our, our premiere for season four. I said, maybe you're going to be the the one one that that saves me, saves me. (laughs) It's coming. And, um, also coming is our, is our, um, carbon capture and storage episode, which, oh, it's definitely, (laughs) I mean, as much as we talk about it, um, it will come out. We promise. (laughs) We'll we'll capture all of our knowledge about carbon capture and store it in the form of a podcast. One of these days, once I get, once, first I have to capture the knowledge before I can store it in audio form. And with that, we end the segment and we end the show. Thank you so much again for listening to us. Um, I'm climate underscore Steve on socials and Kelly. I'm ke- at Kelly M. Jang. Slide into your DMs to tell us if there's anyone we should interview or if there, th- there's any other topics or if there's any other acronyms for WAP that you can think of that are related to energy or not. I was thinking, you know, there's, you know, last week Austin was talking about the food energy water nexus. It could be water agriculture power. <laughs> That's the next episode where we, uh, where we <laughs> go outside of our areas of expertise and try to put together a show. <laughs> Oh, that's that's us every week. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if you like our show, uh, feel free to give us a like and review, and and tell a, a coworker, tell a friend or a family member, um, and let us know what you want to hear about too. Yeah, let, DM us. Tell us tell us what you're interested about. 
and um, we'll maybe make an episode about it. Thanks again for listening. Have a great rest of your night. Mm-hmm.